We all crave connection. At our core, we all want to feel loved and understood. Hi, I'm Nechami, founder of Carmela Cosmetics, a company that produces high-performance natural beauty products and is dedicated to uniting and empowering women through the power of color. This is We Are Women, a podcast where women speak their truth and celebrate their victories. This podcast came about as a way to give a voice to all women because we all have stories to share. It's a place where we'll learn about each other and ourselves, dive into important issues that affect us, discover all that we have in common, and make some memories. So pour yourself a glass of bread and get comfortable. Every night is ladies' night, and we are women. I thought I was pretty well informed and educated when it came to women's diseases and conditions affecting women. This was until I was speaking to a friend of mine back in September of 2018 and I mentioned how we were looking to partner up with organizations devoted to women's healing and empowerment. And she suggested endometriosis and I was like, what's endometriosis? No, that was the beginning of my research and discovery of this disease that affects one in 10 women. I am so honored to have Diana Falzone who came out publicly with her endometriosis diagnosis after suffering for 22 years without a proper diagnosis. And this took a lot of bravery for her because as a public figure, a journalist on Fox News, once word got out, millions of people now knew something so personal that affected her so heavily and she wasn't able to talk about the details of her lawsuit with Fox News with me because she signed an NDA but you know how it goes as a public figure information can be found online so to sum it up three days after her article was published where Diana wrote about her endometriosis diagnosis and about not being able to possibly conceive naturally. Diana was banned from all on-air activities on Fox News, as well as suffered other forms of gender discrimination. And her attorneys argue in the complaint that, I'm gonna quote them here, that the revelation regarding Falzone's infertility detracted from her sex appeal and made her less desirable in the eyes of the male-dominated senior management of Fox News. Wow. This is a really great episode for those of you who have heard of endo, or if this is your first time hearing of it, or if you yourself have endometriosis. Either way, I'm sure you'll learn something and be inspired through Diana's story of courage, faith, and perseverance. I grew up in New Jersey um, with wonderful, loving parents and an older brother. And as I got older, I had an interest in musical theater. Of course, that didn't... uh, (laughs) really go anywhere because I decided that I didn't want to do musical theater. I wanted to help people and I wanted to become a psychologist. So I ended up making a a turn from passions as a young teenager into wanting to help people. So I went to the, uh, the new school university in Manhattan, New York, and I got my psychology degree. And strangely enough, that was not the field that I ended up going into. I was a really uptight, type A, very diligent 20 year old. (laughs) And all I wanted to do was get out in the world and work. And my brother who served in Iraq and just came back from war said, you know, you gotta lighten up. And after the things I've seen, you have to enjoy your life and you're young yet. So on Craigslist, and I would not advise anyone to do this anymore. It was before Craigslist became the cesspool that it is. And of course, there's good and bad and everything. So I'm not selling it down the river. 
Um, but there was an ad to go on a radio show for Sirius Satellite. It wasn't even Sirius XM at this point. We're dating back, you know, early 2000s. And I wrote the, the Craigslist ad and I said, sure, I, you know, I, I would like to be on this radio show. And it was for Maxim Radio. They called me back when I was at the Austin airport in Texas. My brother was living in Texas at the time and I was visiting him. And the producer said, hey, you know, we'd love to have you on. Can you come in this week? So I said, sure, that would be great. So I go in and there's two male hosts and they start giving me a little bit of a tough time because the Maxim brand, of course, was all for guys. Um, and they were saying some some things I didn't agree with and and having my background in psychology, I fought back with some statistics and they liked it. So they kept asking me back and asking me back. And finally, they said, you know, one of our hosts is going to be out for two weeks for jury duty. We've never had a female guest host, but we'd love for you to come in. So I did that for two weeks and they said, you know what? We really like you to do a pilot and uh, try out having your own radio show with a man named John DeVore, who was at the time a Maxim magazine senior editor. So him and I did a pilot. It was a graveyard shift. It was from 10 to 12, Monday through Friday, and people liked it, surprisingly. We, neither of us had any background in broadcasting or media, and they ended up making it a five-day-a-week, four-hour-a-day <laughs> show, and that's how I got my break, and I, I just got into Fordham to get my master's in psychology, and it, I will never forget this moment. I had this once in a lifetime opportunity, but my path, my passion was always to become a psychologist. So parents sat me down at the table and they said, listen, brick and mortar schools will always be there, but this, this won't come around often. It's your decision. Whatever you want to do, we will support you. But sometimes fate intervenes and you have to follow your faith. So that's exactly what I did. I, I did this show. I loved it. I, I look back. It's such fond memories from that show. I got my own talk show when Sirius and XM merged to Sirius XM on Cosmo. It was called Cosmolicious with Diana. I know it's a laughable title. <laughs> <laughs> also in the 2000s, like early 2000s, everything was delicious. Um, it was a, a stark awesome. departure. Yeah, it was a stark departure from Maxim. Um, but I, I love working for those brands. And then during that time, I was writing. Uh, I started working for Military.com because of my brother's background in the military. He went to West Point. I got to really, um, of course, kind of secondhand and also firsthand as somebody, a family member who had a loved one overseas and serving during uh, a wartime. I got to see the struggles that these these men and women in uniform are going through and their loved ones and the strain it took on families. So a passion of mine has always been to be supportive of our, our servicemen and women and our veterans. So I started working for those causes and I ended up uh, guest guest appearances on Fox News uh, Network, the national one, over and over again until that became a actual job. So I've grown a lot. And then after Fox, I, I now work for Vanity Fair and for Vice. I'm a contributor for both. I've uh, really found my calling with investigative reporting. I think the reason I love it so much is it does allow me to use the psychology background where I have to have a keen sense of my sources. Are they trustworthy? Can I believe what they're saying? What is their motivation for telling me this explosive material? Um, I also love digging and finding out the truth and bringing the truth to light. For me, it's never been about a side. It's always been about the facts and letting the public know what's going on so they can make their own informed decisions based on the facts. Wow. 
Yeah, that's great. That's amazing how you're still able to, even though you thought that you were kind of giving up going into psychology, you really, you're able to use it still and help people. Yeah, I, it's, I, I always, I don't want to sound too meta here or <laughs> like destiny, destiny, but I do believe each of us has our own path. And sometimes when we think we're completely off and we're not achieving our goals, but we keep fighting and we keep going for it, but we're hitting a wall, you're not hitting a wall. You are exactly where you're supposed to be. And when you have the moment where you go, I never expected this. I didn't expect to do this or be here, but I'm so happy. I'm so fulfilled. Just because we have these ideas and these expectations of ourselves doesn't mean that's necessarily what we truly intrinsically want. So it's it's the idea of really counting your blessings for where you are and what you have now. And I, yeah, and I've I've learned that perseverance and grit and faith within yourself um, is is really is really the best medicine for getting ahead in life. Right. Wow. That's very powerful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of perseverance, you know, you're, you, you come out publicly with, with the fact that you were diagnosed with endo, mm-hmm. uh, endometriosis. So let's talk about that. Were you familiar with endometriosis before your diagnosis? I was not really familiar. I heard the term. I vaguely knew what it was, but when I say I vaguely knew what it was, it was mostly the general definition of severe periods, cramping, nothing to the extent of what endometriosis really is and how it can affect a woman's body, a person's body. Um, I always had, and you know, I, I'm going to say TMI, but it's really not like the woman's body shouldn't be so. Right. So no, it's not at all. No, it's important. Mis- yeah. Yeah. Or, or mis- mysterious, but um, some people still have an issue with the word period. It's just a biological, physiological thing that happens to a, a woman's body. So I always had difficult periods. I got my period when I was 11 years old. I was really young. I wanted nothing to do with it. I, I almost had this association of like, oh, like this is gross. And it wasn't anything that my parents ever said to me. It was just something within myself. And I had heavy periods. Um, I always felt sick before them, but I thought this was normal. I had ovarian cysts that would, would, would burst. Um, my mom would take, my mom took me to the gynecologist when I was 17 because I got very sick once for my period. It was an ovarian cyst that burst. The pain was excruciating. And they said, oh, we'll put her on the birth control pill. Uh, that should do the trick. Not one time did a doctor say this could be endometriosis. It was just, this is your daughter's cycle. This is how she is when she gets her period. So I would take my heating pad and I would power through it, even though there were days where I felt like I was going to throw up, but I never knew the term. No one talked to me about it. So that's why I'm a big advocate for education and and making sure that, that young people, not just women, but young people understand the disease and they can recognize the signs and symptoms so that they don't have to go on it. You know, the average uh, time to get diagnosed with endo is 10 years. That's 10 years of multiple doctor's appointments, multiple failed treatments, multiple uh, misdiagnoses, just incredibly awful to have to live that way and feel like many times you're insane because nobody can give you the, the validation of, yes, there is something wrong with you. There is an illness. There is a label. It's not in your head. You are sick. So when I was 30, I wasn't even 33. Yet. I was 32. And I started getting very, very ill. Um, while I was at work, I was working at Fox News at the time I was on set 
And I started feeling this sharp kind of abdominal pain on my right side. It felt like a hot piece of coal was being dragged down and, and like dragging my bowels down. It was- That sounds terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> I had sciatic leg pain and then bleeding, heavy bleeding, bleeding I've, I've never seen before. Very troubling. And I ended up going to, I spiked a fever. So I called my doctor and he said, you need to go to the ER. I don't know what's going on. You could have um, appendicitis. Endo didn't come up, by the way. You could have appendicitis. You could be having some sort of kidney stones, all of those things. Um, I went to this, I went to this really fancy hospital in New York City. And I saw a general practitioner who gave me a, a vaginal exam. So I you know, whatever. And he didn't know anything about anything that had to do with the woman's body. And he said, well, I think you might have the flu. So that's probably what's going on. And I'm like, what? <laughs> how does the flu have to, do, how, how does vaginal bleeding have anything to do with influenza? Um, so then I asked if I could see a gynecologist. He said they were all busy at the hospital. He sent me home. I had a gnawing gut feeling and I always trust my gut. I said, something's wrong with me. I know something's wrong with me. I'm th almost 33 years old. I know my body. I trust myself. This medical doctor obviously knows more medically, but I know me. Right. And so I went and was able to see my gynecologist who I only saw once a year for my annual visits. I didn't have much of a relationship with her. She goes, God, you look terrible. You're pale as a ghost. You're trembling. The bleeding's heavy. And then she, she had me, you know, give a, a sample. She said, it's heavy blood. So probably a hormonal imbalance, maybe the flu. Oh my God. So I went, oh my gosh, I'm going bananas. Like this is, this can't be happening. Fortunately, I called a bunch of my friends. I was able to have one of my girlfriends who was familiar with um, not endometriosis, but women's health. And she said, you need to see a specialist. So I was able to see a specialist within a week. Uh, during that week, I was crying myself to sleep. The pain was so bad. And, and unfortunately, my story is, is not uncommon at all. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is endo. Right. Um, and it's taken, so for you, it took, first of all, 10 years is outrageous. That's for sure. But it mm -hmm. took you even longer than that to get yeah. diagnosed because you said yeah. you started getting your periods when you were 11 and this, and you were yes. 33. Yes. That's was, insane. Wow. That is, that's not okay. And you were having symptoms, right? You were having symptoms yeah. from the age of 11 until you were 33. That was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back, this situation that, that happened, right? Right. So, so pretty much like the doctor told me, um, when I did see the specialist, she's like, oh, you have a mass in your uterus. I have, you know, I have a suspicion you might have something called endometriosis. Then she said, I want to do, um, an anti-malarian hormone test on you, an AMH test. It's a blood test to see what your egg reserve is. This will really let us know what's going on if your egg supply is okay. Now, I just celebrated my 33rd birthday at this point. I had a very different plan. I was career oriented. I am very also very family oriented, but I thought I wouldn't even think about having a baby until I was, you know, 36. Here she's telling me we're going to do this test. No big deal, I thought. This is going to be nothing. I even told a woman taking my blood, oh, like, what if my eggs are sunny side up? <laughs> well, yeah, like, who's laughing now? I get a call from the doctor and she says, are you sitting down? Like, oh, boy. She said, well, you know, you have the AMH of a woman who is in menopause. You have a 0 0.07. I wrote it down in, with a Sharpie on a piece of paper. I still have that piece of paper because that piece of paper changed my life. That number changed my life. And she said, 
I said, well, what does it mean? She goes, well, it means that you have a diminished egg reserve. You, you're, you're infertile. You're not sterile. That's different. Sterile means you don't have any eggs. Mm-hmm. You have a very low supply of eggs. It's going, you will never be able to get pregnant naturally. Your only route is going to be in virtue in vitro fertilization, IVF. Um, she said, but you know what? I don't want you to worry about that. Meanwhile, I'm trying not to ball on the phone because that's all I'm worried about. Don't worry about it. Of course you're going to worry about it. (laughs) Right. She goes, you know, first things first, we need to get you in surgery. I have, you know, my suspicions of endometriosis are even higher. I'm going to get you in touch with this surgeon. We're going to get you a book for surgery uh, immediately because you're in a, you're in bad shape. So I ended up having to go for emergency surgery. And then shortly thereafter, I, I, was fortunate enough, and I know there are women who want to do IVF, but they don't have the financial means. Um, I did not have any insurance that would cover it, which is just insanity that our healthcare system doesn't cover women's health issues. Uh, a lot of times, even even uh, excision surgery, which is the gold standard for endometriosis removal, is not covered by insurance companies. These are all battles that we're trying to fight um, for, for the one in 10 women that have or woman that has endometriosis in the United States. There's so many battles that we have ahead of us, uh, but we are fighting them one after the next. And for me, I'm, I'm still battling endo. I just had, uh, sadly, I just had my one, two, three, fourth uh, excision surgery. Um, I lost my ovary and my fallopian tube. My uterus was saved and my other ovary was saved. I Every time I, I think I've got this thing licked, it it gives me another knock, but then I fight it back. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's a disease that doesn't have a cure. And it's it's not deadly, but it, it does affect your organs. My last surgery, I almost went into renal failure, kidney failure, because my ureters uh, were so filled with endometriosis lesions that I was less than a week away from having complete or like complete failure of my kidneys. And I thought I had a UTI and it kept coming up negative and there's no way to test until a doctor goes in there to see that your, your organs are, you know, failing because it has, they have endo lesions all over them. I lost my appendix from endo. There's just so many things that this disease, I have friends now within the endometriosis community that have been brave enough to share their stories publicly about having lung collapse from endo. So it's it's not just a pelvic disease disorder. It, it really can affect, it can even go to the brain. That's like a, you know, very, very small, very rare, but but it can, it can do it. It's, it's um, stabilitating and expensive right. to keep right. getting sick. Yeah. So, right. So you just said that it affects, it goes to your brain. You meant emotionally, right? Like no, it- no. I, I mean, it's very, very rare, but endo can actually go to, I mean, women have, there are, yeah, I mean, it's, it's out there. Um, the center oh, wow. for endocrinosis. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's could spread literally spread to your yes. brain. Yes. Oh my God. I mean, it's, it's incredibly rare and I don't want to scare anyone. And it's, it's really, I mean, I don't even know if there's been any case studies of that. Um, but yes, it's, I think people need to start realizing, and I've written about it for work um, and interviewed some amazingly brave women about their experiences, but it isn't just your ovaries, your uterus, um, anything abdominally, it can spread. I mean, when you think about where the uterus and the ovaries are, I always explain endo as, you know, like if you step in a piece of gum on your shoe Mm -hmm. and then you walk and then the gum starts getting everywhere and it's sticky and it's just attaching to things and it's a mess. That's how I think of endo lesions. It starts in one place, but then it attaches. It's sticky. Like it's that gum on your shoe, but it's, but it's all over your body. So for me, 
like I, my ovary would end up um, getting endo and the lesions would get so bad. It would, it would pull my, so I would get the pain, like the sciatic nerve pain because my ovary was being um, pulled by lesions to the side of my abdominal wall. Wow. So like the organs terrible. get pulled in different directions. Yeah. It's, that's like with the ureters, I'm getting filled with the lesions. That's why I was having so much lower back pain, flank pain. I was having fevers because the body's rejecting the, the, the endometriosis. Um, but it's also causing your, your organs to, to be in different directions <laughs> at wow. times. You no, know, I would talk to a doctor more for, for more information, but I'm saying firsthand what I've experienced and what I've learned about it these last um, several years. Right. For sure. Wow. That's crazy. And is this like an everyday, like, do you feel sick every day or is it just around when you get your period or flare ups? Like how does it work? So for me, I, I have a very aggressive case. What's interesting is I'll be really good. I'll feel great. I'll have, you know, my periods are, they're not a walk in the park, but they're not anything I can't handle with some Advil and a heating pad the first couple of days. However, um, when I do, I don't even know if you would call it an attack. Um, as like after the excision surgery, I'm, I'm pretty good for like six to eight months to a year. And then I start getting the signs of endo, which is for me, it's, you know, it's really bad right side wall pain, pulling, um, sciatic leg pain, it feels like my whole foot is numb on one side. Um, I feel like I'm going to throw up because, you know, if there's the heavy pain. bleeding. Yeah. From the pain, there's heavy bleeding. Sometimes I get a low grade fever. That's when I know that my body is, is in, in bad shape. And usually at that point, that's when I have to get some sort of medical intervention, which sadly for me has been um, the last few years has been needing surgery. Um, the last time I, I had to go because I was having an ovarian torsion from a cyst that was on my left ovary. And that's what caused me to go to the ER because I actually could feel my ovary twisting, which, oh, oh my God. Yeah, it was insane. So it was just a very large cyst that developed over the last year um, very quickly and was causing a lot of disruption within my body. So women with endo, everybody ranges. Personally, for me, um, I considered myself fortunate that I don't have I mean, there are women who suffer from it every single day. They suffer from it right before their periods, during their periods. I'm kind of like a hit and miss case, but when I get it, I, I get it severely when it, when it hits me. Wow. That's awful. Yeah. I mean, speaking about like the emotional, you know, the way it affects women emotionally, um, because mm-hmm. before when you mentioned about um, getting to the brain, I, I thought that you meant because it's such an emotionally like draining condition you know, so many women are depressed, they have anxiety because they feel unheard, you know? Mm-hmm. So that, that's like what I, what I meant before, but could you like elaborate on that? Because I know you, you've spoken to a lot of women who suffer from endo and right. I'm sure they spoke to you and, and I'm sure you yourself have had those, had those oh, days. Of of oh yeah. I mean, for me, it, it's, um, <laughs> it's gotten to be where I'm in, you know, I, I had surgery on June 4th, just recently with, you know, COVID going on. It was in New York city. There were protests happening. I almost didn't make it into the city. I had to have a cop get me in because the bridge was closed. It was, I mean, it was chaotic. Um, I'm thankful for, for all the help. Um, but I remember sitting in the hospital going like, I have a son at home. I have a baby at home and 
I don't want to be here in this hospital. I, I hate endometriosis. I hate what it does to my life. I hate how it puts it on pause. I still have a few more weeks before I'm allowed to lift my son up because of my sutures and because it was a five-hour surgery and they, they did so many incisions within me. It's laparoscopic, but so many that it, it puts your life on hold to have to be in bed because of pain or have to be healing from a surgery or put under always puts your body at so much more risk. And there's, there's no way to say it eloquently than this disease ravages you. And it's not only on a physical level, like you so eloquently said, it's psychological and it takes a toll on you. And that's why for me, I think, you know, this disease that, that has made me physically weak has made me so strong, um, spiritually and and also mentally, because there's no other way to, to deal with it. There is no cure. There's no pill. There's nothing that that you can really uh, do um, to get any kind of, of permanent relief at this point, sadly. So you have to have a mindset of, I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, but I know right now I'm okay. Or I know right now this is temporary and I'm going to, I'm going to rise above the pain. And sometimes you just can't, you have to give into it. And I understand there are women who, who just can't. Um, and I've been in those situations too. Um, but it does, it definitely, it does. It is, it's hard to know. And I don't think about it too much because I, I don't think it would be healthy for my mindset because right. you would live in a, a state of fear. Like, okay, am I going to get sick tomorrow? Like, what if, what if I plan my perfect wedding and on the day of my wedding, I have an endometriosis attack or a flare. What am I going to do? You just can't live that way. You can't let endo dictate. So you have to find ways to live with the illness as best as possible with the right medical interventions that work for you. Right. That makes total sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how about like, what were the reactions of your family and friends? You know, because I'm sure that's important to have a, a strong support system. Yes, I am incredibly grateful and fortunate for a great support system. When I got sick, of course, my family was very scared. They didn't know it was happening. Once I had the diagnosis, uh, that was the first step for for me feeling sane again, <laughs> for for knowing that there was there was light at the end of the tunnel. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't a fatal disease. It was just something that I was going to have to deal with. Um, but my, I have an older brother. We're very very close, and he told me it's heartbreaking for him to see me go through this. That it it's very hard to know your baby sister is in the hospital having surgery again and having to keep going through it. Um, but I think for women that don't feel like they have a support system, that they don't feel their families understand or their partner understands, if you have a partner who doesn't understand and you can get out of it, I'd say leave them. Right. Because, um, <laughs> you know, your health and your, your mental health is very important. If you don't have somebody who has compassion or empathy for the kind of pain that you are going through. And it's a pain that only women with endo can possibly understand. Um, I'd say tell them to kick rocks. <laughs> um, and in terms of finding a community, uh, there's a lot of support out there. I did not know anybody who had endometriosis. I was able to meet some great girls um, who have become my endo sisters, who even up till now, I, I wrote one of my girlfriends who has endo. We've never met in person. But I told her, I was like, listen, I, I have these symptoms. She's like, I think it's this. I think it's that. You should go to the doctor. And she empowered me to advocate for myself. Because even though I advocate for other women all the time, I'm sometimes in disbelief. It's happening to me. It's happening to me again. Um, so you need that person who can understand, who's lived through it, who can, who can give you um, the strength to, to advocate and to go back to the doctor and to find the answers.
Right. For sure. Yeah. I always say when we have a support system and when you feel heard, no matter what you're going through, it makes everything, it, it like takes the burden off of you. You know, it just makes things easier and to handle mm-hmm. and helps you fight whatever you're going through. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree. Yeah. And so when you went to your doctor and you got that test, she told you that you won't be able to, to have, have children, right? Um, and Not- that- yeah. Okay, naturally. So that, and then getting pregnant would be incredibly difficult, if not if not possible at all. Like it, it might not happen. Is what she told me to expect. Wow. Okay. So how did that change your perception of things? Because like less than two years later, you had a baby, right? So yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it drastically changed. I always wanted to be a mother. Um, I, I will say this about endometriosis, and for the women I've spoken to, at least. It's not everybody who has endometriosis has this dream to be a mother and feels like it's going to complete them. Everybody has their own journey, their own wants, their own needs. I think what it comes down to is everyone wants the choice. Right. Absolutely. And we don't want this disease to rob us of having those options. So even if you don't, it's just really upsetting to think you might not, um, might not be able to have the choice should you change your mind down the road. Um, for me, it became, okay. You know, like I said, I'm going to go back to being that type A kid. I'm still type A. So when I found out, I was told this would be almost virtually impossible. I thought, okay, this is a challenge. I'm good with challenges. What can we do? What can I do to ensure that I have the option of becoming a mother? So my doctors recommended that I freeze my eggs. And I will tell women this. If you want to invest in anything in life, that if you even think there's a 1% chance you might want to have children one day, but you don't have the right partner, you don't have the right job, you don't have the right apartment, you don't, whatever, I don't care what it is, freeze your eggs, take whatever money that you can and freeze your eggs, get a loan, freeze your eggs, because you will never, ever regret having that backup plan or that option should you ever want it. Um, and and then you can just have them on ice and do whatever you want with your life. <laughs> and they're there. Um, <laughs> That's smart. So I went, for sure. yeah. So I went ahead and froze my eggs, and I thought, okay, great. Now I'm safe. I had the surgery. I should. I was told I would never get sick again. I was like, woo, woo, great. I'm in the clear. This is wonderful. No, <laughs> that's not what happened. What happened was I had my first surgery in March 2016, and then I had my second surgery in May 2017. So like barely a year apart. And after that surgery, my doctors told me when I was in the hospital recovering, they said, you, you really have aggressive endo. You're not going to be able to have a pregnancy. Really. You're going to have another attack soon. Like, we don't know. We don't know how to control this. You've got a window here. Like we need to, we need to figure out what you want to do. We're thinking another round to get your eggs because they didn't get many eggs the first time because I have such a low egg reserve. So let's get fresh eggs. Let's try to get more eggs from you as many as we can before you have another attack. And let's, let's do, um, you know, if you, if you're emotionally ready, why don't we do, um, uh, IVF and make embryos. So, cause they said, you've got about a six month window before you're probably going to have endo again and not be able, we're going to need another surgery. We're going to start all over again. You might not be able to carry me might not be able to save your uterus. So that's exactly what I did. I went into a full on <laughs> preparing my body with all the needles. So many needles. I actually learned how to do the injections on YouTube. Oh my I, did, gosh. <laughs> I did them all by myself. I can like, honestly, if any, friend, amazing. any kind of medicine, I'm like, I can help you. Not that I should, that's not legal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll but, I, 
but I could, wink, wink. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, my entire pregnancy was high risk. I was so fortunate. I got pregnant after my first embryo transfer. Um, I cannot count my lucky stars more. My son is almost two years old, be two in August. He is my miracle baby. I did, you know, love and shots, which are blood thinning shots all the way up to my eighth month. I could never have those like pretty belly pictures because I was black and blue everywhere. Um, I ended up having uh, a very nice pregnancy minus it being high risk. Um, I was very happy, uh, very healthy under great care, you know, knock on wood went very, very well. Um, but then my delivery was unexpected. I had a scheduled C-section because they said it would be the safest thing for me with my history to have a C-section, had a scheduled C-section. They asked me right before, would you, you know, would you be willing to accept blood? Should you need it? I said, sure, no problem. Like it's not going to happen. They said the chances of you, you know, needing blood, very slim, never does rarely happens. I had a C-section. I met my baby boy, kissed him. They took him away from me. And the next thing you know, they're saying she's, she won't stop bleeding she won't stop bleeding. And I, my anesthesiologist, who is my point person in the room, he looked away and I was like, what's going on? What's going on? And he didn't even look at me. He just went into action and they started telling me they were going to flip me over and they started injecting me, I guess, with uh, something to stop the blood. Um, and then they were pumping my uterus and it wasn't working. And I had a uterine adeny, which is a hemorrhage and I was hemorrhaging and I lost a lot of blood. Um, a lot of blood and luckily they were able to, to help. But then that night I started hemorrhaging again uh, in the maternity ward and I needed two, um, two units of blood, of blood transfusions. So I was, I was very fortunate. Um, and once again, another thing is the second time that I was bleeding out, I felt like I was floating. The baby was in the bassinet next to me. I felt like I was floating. I didn't feel well. I, the orderly came in, she was checking my catheter. I said, I think something's wrong with me. She said, well, you just had surgery, sur surgery, dear. You just had a C-section. I said, no, something's really wrong. Please may I see the nurse. It took a while for the nurse to get there. I told her, I said, is the bed floating? I feel like I'm floating. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, no. And everybody was like talking like in Charlie Brown to me like, wah, wah, wah. Well, it went with my blood went from a 10 to a six. I was at a six for my blood <sighs> count. Oh my God. So I could have. So the nurses were like, we thought you might've died. So yeah. I mean, I tell you this, this uterus and I've been through a lot. <laughs> oh my God. It sounds like it was, this related, was all the hemorrhaging and the loss of blood. Was that related to endo or was that a separate thing? I spoke to Dr. Suchkin, who is uh, my surgeon. And also he is one of the co-founders of the endometriosis foundation of America. And I was speaking to him after we uh, testified or after I testified at Capitol Hill about endometriosis awareness back in November last year. And we were having lunch and I was telling him about the delivery and he was like, oh yeah, endometriosis uh, patients have a higher risk of uterine adeny. I was like, why? And we didn't have enough time to get into it, but apparently there is some sort of correlation, once again, not a doctor, uh, but there is. Um, so yeah, who knew? And definitely wasn't prepared for that. Wow. I'm actually, it's funny because I'm actually holding his book in my hand as, oh, as yeah. he mentioned his name, because I wanted to just get, I, I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't like mess up the name. The doctor will see you now. Um, mm -hmm. I actually read that book, of course, when, once we partnered with, with the Endo Foundation, mm -hmm. I wanted to, you know, obviously educate myself as much as I could. Um, and 
I was reading it. I actually wanted to ask you about this because I thought he mentioned something about surgeries, like not needing to keep on doing the same surgery. Mm-hmm. So interesting that you mentioned that he's your surgeon. So mm-hmm. do you know what I'm talking about? Like, if I'm, a- yeah. I mean, I think it it depends. Everybody's case is different. So for me, like I said, I have a very aggressive case. They don't know why I react the way I react or why I have the issues I have. It like. There's women who have one surgery and they're great. There's other women that have multiple and they're just not okay. There's women who never have, they never need surgery. They have endometriosis, but the only way to diagnose endometriosis is through biopsying the tissue. To to be clear, a doctor can have a hypothesis that you might have endometriosis, but unless they actually diagnose and and do a pathology of that tissue, they won't, they won't know. Um, So for me, I don't want to scare anybody. I've had a difficult journey with endo. Um, Dr. Sachke knows this. Um, Lena Dunham also had a very difficult journey publicly with endo. So everybody's different. Um, I don't, like I said, I don't know why for me, why it's been the, the way it has been. So your endo just keeps coming back. It seems, it sounds like even after yeah. the search. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I've also gone through stressful things and stress with an inflammatory disease is not great. So, you know, when you go through a lot of stress, like super duper stressful life circumstances that are not normal um, or or things that people usually have to deal with frequently um, or have ever, um, that can that can add to a disease that kind of falls under the autoimmune category. So. I've had the last couple of years for me have been, you know, not only battling physically, but I've had a lot of hurdles in my career um, that I've that I've dealt with. So all of that stress is not good for anybody, let alone someone who has endometriosis. For sure, for sure. For for a lot for me, like I I kind of would people don't even at the so put it this way, I had surgery June fourth. I was I was writing a story for work on June. 6th. Um, and I barely could sit because it was so painful from the incisions. I just have this way where I internalize a lot of stress. I push through a lot to the point where I shouldn't. And, and that's on me for not voicing sometimes when I'm going through difficulties or when I need help, that's I'm stubborn. And it's not, it's not necessarily a good trait when you need to heal or when you have a body that doesn't always cooperate with you. But it's also gotten you, it got you that first job, right? Which started your career. (laughs) Yes, that's true. So sometimes your best traits are your worst traits, right? Right. (laughs) Which by the way, I love how you fought for, for that job, because when you mentioned it earlier, it sounded like they were, they were a little hesitant to give it to you because you were a woman. But well, they, yeah, they never, they never, I was the first and only, they never hired another woman (laughs) for Maxim. Um, and it was, it was, I was young. I was inexperienced. I was green. I was so naive too. Oh my gosh. Especially working for a men's magazine brand. Oof. Um, it was going through, uh, like a very quick education, um, of, of the real world. Um, but yes, I, I fought a lot, um, to just always prove myself. And I think there were a lot of low expectations, especially because I have posed in bikinis and I was in Maxim magazine. People thought, oh, she's a bimbo. Like, what is she? Like, she probably can't even spell. To this day, I have people who will ask me if I have a ghostwriter for my stories. Oh my God. Yeah. So, but it works. It's slightly offensive, but then you're like, 
oh, okay, dude, or lady, give me a break. So you, you just kind of, you don't get so sensitive. Sure. It gets your feathers ruffled a little bit. That's so offensive. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's offensive. Um, but I just kind of, you know, one ear out the next, because I, I don't, those people don't matter what you're doing, what you're focused on, what you're achieving, that makes all the noise. That's the clap back. I don't need to clap back to the guy who's a dummy or the woman who's a dummy um, who wants to put me down for whatever is going on within themselves. Um, For me, the low expectations have worked because people thought I couldn't put a sentence together because I posed in a bikini. Meanwhile, why shouldn't a woman be able to pose in a bikini and be articulate and intelligent and a career woman and driven and all of those things? But even though we're in 2020, my Lord, do we have a lot of work to do as a gender. We are still fighting the good fight. Um, There are still stereotypes abound. There are still women dealing with toxic workplaces. Um, And for me, great. All those people who thought I couldn't spell, look at amazing. I can't believe I'm a professional writer. (laughs) Right. And you write for Vanity Fair. I mean, that's incredible. That's yes. Yes. I'm very, very fortunate, very fortunate to do what I love. Yeah. So backtracking just a little bit about, you know, when you came out with your diagnosis, could you share your experience with me? So when I came out, so I had no idea, first of all, how prevalent endometriosis was among females. I didn't realize there was an estimated 200 million women globally that have this. I was sitting in my doctor's office waiting to have a blood test because I was doing, um, I was doing egg retrieval. So I would have to go in and get my blood levels and my hormones monitor. The woman who runs the office was seeing me, you know, every couple of days. So her and I got close and there were a lot of women in that morning, right before I went to work, I would, I would go get my blood tests. And a couple of the women were biting their fingernails, clenching their jaws. One looked like she was near tears. And I whispered to the woman who ran the office. And I said, these poor women, they're so stressed out. And she was like, they suffer in silence. They suffer in silence. And she said, but you know, you could do something about that. And I said, what do you mean? She said, Diana, you have a big platform. You can write about it. And I thought, "Uh, I don't know. Like, I I don't know. I don't want to tell people. I don't want people to think I'm sick. I don't want people to treat me differently. I don't want anyone to think I can't do my job. Or that I, you know, I, I won't work as hard or something's wrong with me. And what if someone doesn't want to date me because I, I might not be able to have a baby. I don't want people to know the most intimate personal details of my body. And she said, well, think about it. And that's what I did. I thought about it. I grappled with it. And I thought I, it's not, should I do something? It was, I had to do something. It was almost the most miserly selfish thing I could do to not share my story and the knowledge that I learned. For me to hoard that knowledge and not help a woman who was silently suffering like those women I saw in the office to feel like they were all alone when I could actually write something about my firsthand experience that they could connect to and know there was another woman dealing with something very similar, if not the same, that was my mission. That was my calling. And that's exactly what I did. Wow. That's so special of you. You're amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Seriously, it's not, it's not easy, especially when you're a public figure coming out with something that's so personal to you, you know? It wasn't easy. And I remember when the editor at my company said to me, okay, Diana, we're going to press publish now. She said, are you ready? And I was like, okay, I'm ready. We're sitting at my desk 
And maybe an hour later, my boss came over and he said, how are you doing? Do you feel okay? You feel good? And I was getting just a slew of messages from strangers, but then my colleagues were coming up to my desk and they were hugging me and holding me because I didn't even tell anyone that I had surgery. This was almost a year after the surgery that I, or about a year after the surgery that I went public with my story. So it was, it was only maybe a couple of my supervisors and my direct coworkers that knew. So people are like, I didn't even know. I didn't even know you were sick. Everything looked fine. And that's the other thing about endo. You, you do look fine. Um, so people don't quite understand what you're going through physically. Right. Wow. Wow. And this is when you were working um, at Fox, right? Yes. I was at Fox News then. Okay. So what were the repercussions of sharing the article? Unfortunately, I can't address that as much as I would like to. I signed something called a non-disclosure agreement, which prohibits me from talking about my experiences while I worked at the company. What I can say is that I did sue Fox News for gender and disability discrimination in May 2017, and I settled and left the company in March 2018. Um, And I would tell anyone who is filing a lawsuit or has a lawsuit or is doing an arbitration or a mediation that they become knowledgeable about NDAs and just what they prohibit you from talking about. Because if I had known what I now know and really understood what I was signing, I never would have. Yeah. So that's very important because I'm sure you, I'm sure many, many women have gone through that. Yeah. Signing things that they're not quite sure of and they feel pressured to do it. And, and especially when you're in, I mean, the idea that a person files a lawsuit for a, you know, jackpot money grab is BS. I will tell you that because for me it was, you know, and I can't really say much, but it's never been, it's never been about money, but the, the way they set up the system, that's the only retribution that they give. Um, but anyone who sues the the financial stress of suing, the burden of that, um, the fact that many times you're unemployed for people who, you know, have been terminated or, or are demoted or what have you. Um, <laughs> it's not for the weak of heart. And I, I think it's, it's really unfair that, that people have this idea that if someone sues, um, it, it makes them the bad guy when ultimately it's exercising your legal rights to advocate for what you believe was, was injustice done to you or done to others. Um, there should be, there should be no shame in that, um, at all. But unfortunately we have, like I said, it's a system. The system needs to be fixed before people come out and attack the women that, that want to speak up or men that want to speak up and, and be whistleblowers or talk about their own experiences. For sure. For sure. So how can someone help a loved one who's suffering from endo? There's several ways they can, but one of the ways I would say is be an active listener, uh, pay attention to how that person is feeling that if they are somebody, I would say, go with them. If they're comfortable, go with them to their doctor's appointments. Because I know for me, I was living in the city. My family was in Jersey. I would go to a lot of my appointments alone. And sometimes you're just so overwhelmed in the room with the doctor. And I'm also, and and this is something I'm trying to change about myself. I'm an, I'm sorry person. Mm -hmm. I don't want to take your time person. I know you're a very busy person. 
So I'm a people pleaser. So when I'm in the doctor's office, I'm like, oh, I'm sure you're super busy. I just want just one quick question. And then it becomes like, you know, like, yeah, I don't really get what I want to talk about because I'm more worried about the doctor's time and worried about him seeing his enough patient than I am about myself, which is just dumb, right? Like you're there for a reason. Yes, exactly. You have a problem. So if you're somebody like me who is a people pleaser or a little nervous to ask the questions, bring in somebody who, you know, bring your loudmouth friend who's not afraid. <laughs> bring, your, bring your family member who's totally fine and going like, hey, listen, she, she, I've seen her suffer like this. I know what she's going through. She needs to, you know, what can, what can you, can you explain that? Or they remind you, they jog your memory of what happened, you know, the last several months when they saw you not feeling well or, or you getting sick. So I think um, family members can truly be um, advocates. They can really be health advocates. Yes, for sure. That makes total sense. Yeah. And we kind of touched on this earlier, but um, if there was something you could change regarding the way our culture or education, you know, that could impact endo, mm -hmm. um, what would you choose? And I'm kind of going to like um, continue this and say, you know, to confirm this, that this is part of, you know, what happened in your personal story. But let's just say, you know, um, in regards to men having a discomfort with hearing that a woman won't be able to have children or has some situation affecting her, her uterus or, uh -huh. you know, if that has what to do with it, is that something that you would, you know, want to change? My father always said that stupid is dangerous. And when people try to make decisions based on uninformed information. <laughs> that is scary. My hope is that endometriosis, and I know there's many diseases out there that do not get the attention they deserve. That's an overall problem. However, endometriosis affects one in 10 women in the United States of reproductive age. So it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in the room with 10 people, one person has it. And of course it varies in, in severity, but the best thing we can do is educate our, our school nurses, educate our children so they can know their own bodies, recognize the signs and symptoms, as I said earlier. Also, we need to pass legislation to have that happen, which we did. We did a pass legislation for the first ever, which is awesome, and I'm so proud to be a part of it with the Endo Foundation, that, that all of New York State would be offering materials on endometriosis and other menstrual disorder illnesses so that these young people could say, oh, I have this sign and go talk to the school nurse and the school nurse her, herself or himself would be informed about it. And then also the parents would get the literature. So that's a first step. Um, but how do you change someone's attitude towards periods being ew, yucky, or a woman having endometriosis? I can't tell you the things that people have said to me about endometriosis and how offensive it is. I've had people even say to me, well, your son's not really your son because you did IVF. Oh I'm like, what? <laughs> yes. So there's very, and, and, and that's the minority, but there's very little understanding about women's health, period, let alone with something like endometriosis, which is one of the most perplexing illnesses, even to general gynecologist. So I think education is going to be the first step. And then we really need to get into funding and more research in order to make the advancements we need, because pills are not going to fix it. Pills are going to cover the problem. Surgeries, so expensive, so taxing physically. It isn't a way to live to have six to eight week recoveries each time being out of, you know, your normal life, your normal routine. That, that isn't a way to do it either. So like I said, 
endometriosis is getting attention, but now we need to continue fighting to make sure that that attention translates into education and translates into funding so that we can get a cure that we all deserve. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. And I just want to finish this up by, I know we touched on this as well, but what do you wish that people knew about endo people who are not, who don't, who don't have loved ones? You know, we're not talking about health professionals, people who are, uh-huh. who are working hand in hand with these women, just anybody, you know, like, what do you wish people knew? That endometriosis is far beyond bad cramps, that it's far beyond a heavy period, that it isn't something that a woman can push through, that this is a absolutely debilitating illness that causes lesions to grow outside of your pelvic region and pull your organs out of place and can sometimes kill your organs and cause renal failure, lose your appendix, lung collapse. This is a very serious illness and that it should not be chalked up to, you've got a period, take some Advil, deal with it. Um, it needs to be treated seriously because it is a serious illness. Yes, for sure. Do you have a message that you would like to share with your fellow endo sisters? That you're the strongest people I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anybody who can, who can fight endo can fight anything. Even when you feel like you're at your weakest, weakest spot and you're on your bed crying and you have your heat pad and you don't think it's ever going to get better. It will, it will get better. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to fix it for you at this point. I know there's ways that you can advocate for yourself and please never stop advocating. If someone doesn't listen to you, if a doctor doesn't listen to you, go to another doctor, never stop fighting for you because you're the most important person in your life and you always will be, and you won't be good to anybody else. If you're not healthy and living your most fulfilled life and everybody, everybody has a right to that. Everybody who lives in Breeze has a right to that, including the woman with endo. Of course. Yeah. I'm like getting goosebumps from you because it's it's so true. <laughs> and like, I have so much admiration for, for all of you and, and respect for what you deal with on a daily basis. And, and even more so that it's not recognized enough and people, people don't, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? There's not enough knowledge and education, but we're, we're working really hard to spread that, you know? <laughs> And thank you. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk to you on, on your podcast and, and for, for giving voice to women like myself that have the disease, that want other women that have the disease to know that they are not alone. Um, I always said, no matter what happens in my life, I don't care if I'm 55 and you know I'm going through menopause now. I'm like super young to be going through it, but I am thanks to endo. And <laughs> because of endometriosis, but even when I'm 55 and, and hopefully I pray I'm like really postmenopausal and don't have endo anymore. I will never stop fighting for that woman that has it because I know that we need as many soldiers in our army as possible. And you won't because you've been through it and you, you know what it's like. And yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Okay. Then just to finish up, what's something that you hope the next generation of women don't have to struggle with? Oh, that's such a loaded question. I have so many things. <laughs> um, hmm. Well, I hope they don't ever have to deal with endometriosis. I hope that there's a cure. I mean, that's my that's my hope for that population. But for women at large, I I I hope they don't have to deal with sexual harassment. I hope they don't ever have to worry about sexual assaults while they're on a date or walking in an alley or a hallway. Yeah. Uh, I hope that they don't have to be condescended to in the workplace. I hope that they don't have to be discriminated against just because of their gender. I hope that they can achieve as much success as a man next to them and make more money if they're in a position that yields that. Um, I, I just hope for the next generation that we do better, that we are now, 
and that we continue with every generation to do better, to be better, to unify, to not divide, to not allow political differences to rip us apart, to stop um, being mean and catty with one another and build one another up and realize that we're better together than we are comparing our lives on Instagram. Um, I really think that social media has done a great service in terms of getting words out about, about important issues, but I also think that it's created a keeping up with the Joneses kind of mentality that isn't healthy. Um, you're just where you were supposed to be and you are going to be on your own path and you can't compare yourself to anybody else because um, <laughs> you will go insane thinking that you don't have this and you don't have that. And be blinded by all the things that you do have right in front of you because you're living through a filtered lens. Um, so I think the next generation, I just hope for them to just have it a little easier because of the fights we're having now, just as I know our mothers and our grandmothers fought for us now. Yeah, for sure. And you're doing your part. You're really, you're on the board of the Endo Foundation. And you- yes, the advisory board. Yep. Yeah. And and you've been fighting for women, you know, since you started working in journalism, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and which is incredible. Um, okay, so where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? You can check me out. Speaking of Instagram, the good and the bad, right? <laughs> uh, you can see my work and see what I'm up to on Instagram at Diana Falzone, and also I'm on Twitter as well. So you can check me out there and you can connect with me if you have endometriosis or any kind of issues about women's health. I'm not a doctor, um, but I'm always receptive and, and try to give words of encouragement to those that, that might be dealing with some rough spots. Awesome. Thank you so much, Diana, for joining me today. You. I appreciate it. And thank you for everything you're doing too. I love your line. <laughs> That's all for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Carmela Cosmetics. That's Carmela with a K. And on our website, CarmelaCosmetics.com. If there's a woman in your life whose story needs to be heard, send me a message to let me know who she is and why she means so much to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know your thoughts. We want you to feel heard. 